0: Well, as those get past hours, I want to extend my welcome to the Semester 2 Bible Talks with EOC. Uh, we're starting. It is good to be here. Uh, and as most of you will probably know, this is my second semester with you guys, and it will also be my last. I can only happy year with you guys before I overthrow in the towel. Uh, and so I thought, because of that, given that this is my way out, I I thought long and hard about what we would do in the Bible Talks this semester, so that whether or not that we found a replacement for me for next year, I would leave you in a solid position to carry on the work of the Gospel on campus. So I wanted to leave a legacy with EOC, but but not a legacy of me, but a legacy of the Word. What I wanted to do was set you on a solid foundation, a solid rock uh, from which you could then continue, and so that's why I chose the book of Romans. Now, the reformation of the Christian church was sparked by this book. Have a look at what Martin Luther, who was the first great reformer, said about Romans. He said, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Romans is perhaps the greatest exposition of the gospel of Jesus that we have in the Bible. It goes wide and it goes deep. And so as we begin the end of this particular era of EOC, what I want us to do is, as Luther suggests, I want us to read it and ponder it. And taste it, and chew the morsels around to extract all of the juices. But before we begin to start doing that, I want to give us a warning, because there is a tragic mistake that we can make before we even begin, before we even start the meal that's before us. And that's to miss the nature of Paul's letter. Now, Philip Melanchthon, he was a contemporary of Luther, he was also a Protestant reformer, and he described Romans as a compendium of Christian doctrine. Now, as far as his statement goes, he's correct. The book is loaded with doctrine and theology. It has some of the most in-depth treatments of a whole bunch of topics in the Scriptures uh, that you won't find anywhere else. If you want to know about sin, if you want to know about righteousness, the law, predestination, love, worship, all of it is contained in Romans. But if that's all we think Romans is, some sort of timeless theological treatise, some sort of systematic textbook to help us correct people on subtle Christian traits then you have missed the point of Romans. You've missed its heart. And that's actually why the first 17 verses of Romans are so important. As we read them, it just looks like the formalities of a letter. And it's tempting for us to skip over them and get to the good stuff that comes afterwards. But we need to remember that these verses frame the letter, and they actually help make sense of the doctrine that follows. And so in verse 15 we see that Paul is eager to preach the gospel to the Romans. And it's this verse, that, in this verse, that Paul makes explicit what is apparent throughout today's passage. He loves the gospel. And he wants to make it known in all of its fullness, in all of its doctrinal depth, because by it people are saved. And so today what's going to happen is that we're going to get grounded in the gospel. And we're going to look at the heart of the gospel and what it is. And then after that, we're going to look at the heart of the gospel preacher who shares it. Those are the two sections that we'll be looking at this passage in today. So let's have a look first at the heart of the gospel. This is in verses 1 to 7. Let me read it to you. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, Now, as we read the beginning of that bit of the letter, you'll realise that Romans is not beginning in a typical fashion. Usually in the Greco-Roman world, what would happen is letter openings, they follow a standard formula, it's pretty succinct. Who it's from, who it's for, how you're doing, here's your letter. That's basically how letters went down back then. But Paul can't even get past his own introduction before he starts preaching the Gospel. Now, whether it's because he just gets psyched every time he hears the Gospel mentioned, whether it's because he's trying to establish precisely the gospel that he's been set apart from, we don't actually know. But whatever the reason is, we have in these verses one of the clearest and most succinct summaries of the gospel that we will find in the New Testament. And so it's worth our time sitting in this space and actually figuring out what is it that we actually believe and proclaim. And I want to draw our attention to two things that occur in these verses. We see what the gospel is, and then we see what the gospel demands. So first of all, what the gospel is. We see this in verses 2 through 4. Now, I actually want to give you a moment together. Um, if I was to ask you the question, how would you summarise the gospel, how would you do it? I'm going to give you 30 seconds with the person next to you. How would you summarise the gospel? <laughs> Oh says, Alrighty, that should be enough. I'm not going to give you any more time than that. I think if you've asked most Christians how they'd summarise the gospel, most of them would say something like, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, yeah? Um but I want to show you here that Paul goes in a completely different direction. Um, let's have a look, we'll start at the beginning, uh, at the end of verse one, where he says he set apart the gospel of God. Let's see what he says. So he set apart for the gospel of God. So the first thing we see is that it is God's gospel, and not ours. We didn't make it up. It's not some sort of human construct. It came from Him. How do we know? Well, He promised it there, centuries before, through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures, by which He means the Old Testament. So this has been coming for a long time. This is a long-standing plan. Again, this is not something that man made up. It's not something that God dreamed up after the fact. This has an intention and it has a purpose. And so we see that it's promise. We see that it's in the Scriptures. And now here's the key part in verse 3. It concerns God's Son. Now, if any of you know your Old Testament even marginally well, you will know that God's Son is a loaded term. It carries with it a whole freight of ideas and expectations and hopes because the Son of God, otherwise known as God's Anointed One or His Messiah, this was the guy who was going to come on behalf of God. He was promised to the people of Israel and he would come and be their saviour and their king. The Son would destroy Israel's enemies and he would restore Israel to favour and blessing through his benevolent rule. My bad. And so Israel was waiting for this son to show up and rescue them from their oppressors. And through him, to establish his eternal kingdom. And so, when Paul says he's an apostle of the gospel of God, essentially what he's saying is a herald, he's not just making some sort of Insta post about what he ate for breakfast. This is a big announcement. Isn't this a puff piece about a dog that can play chess that you can't just put at the end of the news to fill the space? This is like breaking headlines the level of a declaration of war kind of thing, right? And so you don't want to get that one wrong. So what makes Paul so sure? Well, I think he gives us two defining characteristics of the son that will give us confidence that what was promised, namely the son's rescue and his rule, that that has finally come to pass. Now, there's two things. The first, in verse 3, is that he is descended from David. Now, that seems a little strange on first glance, doesn't it? Because when I think Christianity, I'm not thinking genetics or family trees or who's related to great Aunt Edna. What I'm thinking is something to do with salvation. And yet this descent from David is critical to establish because God's promise to the son or of the son was originally made to a man called David who was a king in Israel. So let me read to you from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 14. This is the promise that God makes to David. What does he say? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I shall build a, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And so the son that God promised would actually come from David's line. That's the first characteristic when we're looking for the son. Now the second defining characteristic is in the next verse. So we move from verse 3 to verse 4 and we see that not only was he descended from David but that he was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. That's the second characteristic. He was resurrected from the dead. Let me ask you a question. How do you rule forever? Simple answer. You don't die. You die... You've only got a limited time to rule, right? Like 40 years, 50 years, if you're lucky. Now, what's the problem with a human son? What do you think it is? They die. Now, there were plenty of people descended from David, many of them kings, but not one of them was ever mistaken for God's son because they all died. The only one who ever bucked that trend, it won't come to any surprise, is the Lord Jesus. And that's not because he never died, but because he didn't stay dead. And so in being resurrected from the dead, we see in verse 4 that he was declared to be the son of God in power. The word there is actually better used, appointed. There was something about the fact that when he rose from life again, he assumed a role and a title that he hadn't had before. He ascended the throne, and by virtue of his resurrected life, he would stay on that throne forever. And that, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. How would you summarize it? Well, here's how Paul summarizes it. The gospel is the fact that Jesus is the promised son because he is descended from David and he's been resurrected from the dead. If you want the two defining marks of the son, who is the gospel, then those are it. That is the heart of the gospel. And that's why our EOC mission statement says what it says. Now, here's a challenge. Who here wants to have a go at saying it out loud from memory for us? The EOC mission statement. Does somebody want to have a crack? Don't all lunge at once. How does it begin? I'll give you the first word. Prayerfully. And yeah, the next bit. Proclaiming. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And At ACU North Sydney. To make a mature disciples of Jesus. There it is. On the count of three, we're saying it all together. Okay? One, two, three. Prayerfully proclaiming Jesus Christ at ACU North Sydney to make and mature disciples of Jesus. What is it that we do as EOC on campus? Well, we proclaim the Son, Jesus Christ. And we know this because he was descended from David, he was resurrected from the dead. That is the heart of the Gospel. Now, when we move from there, we need to understand that we don't just proclaim that for funsies. We actually proclaim that expecting a response and that leads us from what the Gospel is to what the Gospel demands. Now have a look there at verse 5. Paul has been given, through Jesus, grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith to the sake of his name among all the nations. And so what Paul has been given is a task, and it's not just to preach the Gospel, but by preaching it, he will bring about something called the obedience of faith. That is what the Gospel demands of those who hear it. But what is the obedience of faith, I hear you ask? Well, it's an unusual term, isn't it? It only appears in Romans, and it only appears two times, here in verse 5, and then right at the very end of Romans. So what I want to suggest is there are three main options. The first is the obedience of faith is sort of like the obedience that is, or the obedience that consists of faith. You can offer obedience in a whole bunch of different ways, but the way that Paul wants it to be offered is by faith. Now the second, the second is the obedience that flows from faith. And then the third, well he's just using the term synonymously and obedience is the same as faith. So I just want to give you again some, some 30 seconds maybe with the person next to you. Which do you think Paul means when he says the obedience of faith? (laughs) That's why is be to like Uh, All right, that should be enough. Um, if anyone uses Wikipedia, I'd be very, very upset. Um, trying to work out this phrase is actually really tricky. Now, one thing that we can do straight away is we can rule out verse, uh, option number three. Uh, we know in Romans, as we keep reading Romans, that faith and obedience are actually quite distinct concepts. Uh, When Paul says faith, he has an idea in his head, which is faith. When he says obedience, he has an idea of obedience. But it's the bringing together of these two terms that makes things a bit more confusing, which makes it harder for us to decide between number one and number two. Now, let's have a think about number two, obedience that flows from faith. Well, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense, actually. If you recall uh, somewhere like Romans, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 6, we're told that without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and rewards those who seek Him. And so there's a very real reality that all of our Christian obedience flows from our faith. And like it says in James chapter 2, if you claim to have faith but not works, then your faith is dead. So the two do go hand in hand. Now, despite this, um, all this being true, I actually don't think this is the particular emphasis that Paul is using here in this phrase. He probably includes number two when he's using it, because a life of faith can't but issue in obedience. But I don't think this is where his emphasis is. And the reason I think this is because of Romans chapter 10, verse 16. Have a look at what it says there. Uh, Paul is talking about the Jewish people, and he says, But they, the Jews, have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now, do you notice the parallelism that's happening in this verse? What does obedience to the gospel look like? Well, according to Paul, it means believing it. Um, You see this again in the next chapter in Romans 11. Uh, It's not as clear because it's not all in the same verse, but we see in verse 23 there, he's talking about the Jews again, um, stating a, a, a hypothetical, if they do not continue in their unbelief. But then a little bit later in verse 30 and again in verse 31, The same topic we see described as disobedience. Now, just in case you're not convinced yet, we can go to one more verse. This time it's outside of Romans. Consider John chapter 3, verse 36. What does it say? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So again, you're starting to see some parallelism here, right? Uh, To obey the Gospel is to... Believe it. So, this is then how you respond to the gospel. You obey it. You respond to it in faith. You trust the Son. What does it look like? Well, you believe what he says. And that's not just a mental agreement or assent, it's actually a reorientation of your entire life around the truth that he speaks that you now consider to be true simply because it is he that speaks it. It is so simple and yet so profound because this is the ongoing pattern of the Christian life when he speaks we listen when he calls we answer this is as Christians how we bow the knee to the son we trust him that is what the obedience of faith is and this is what Paul as the apostle to the non-Jewish world this is what he is called to do and what he calls us to do as Gentiles as non-Jews I hope you saw that there in verse verse 5 have a look again He's to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. And that includes a little old place called Australia. So, my first question really is as you confront the gospel, have you responded in obedience of faith? As you see the gospel proclaimed in the Son, descended from David, resurrected from the dead, have you responded to it in the way that it demands? Let me summarise then where we've been so far. Let's look at the heart of the gospel. What is the gospel? It is God's announcement about his promised son, the eternal King Jesus. Two characteristics. He's descended from David. He's resurrected from the dead. What does that gospel demand? Well, it demands a response of faith. This is the obedience that you give to God's King, that he might save you and include you in his kingdom. Now, after all of that, we're just in verse 5. So it's time to pick up the pace. Don't worry, it's all intentional. This isn't going to go for three hours. Once you understand the heart of the gospel, you can understand the heart of the gospel preacher. God, um, Paul has been commissioned by God to take God's gospel to all the nations. And we actually see this in verse 16, that this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile. And so this gospel, it's not esoteric. It's not exclusive. It's not even Jewish. The sun reigns over all. And so the offer of salvation found in this gospel is an offer made to every single one of us. The gospel, you could say, is global in its scope. And subsequently, what we see in the rest of the passage is the heart of the gospel preacher. Now, I want to suggest there are actually three things, three things in the rest of this passage, from verse 8 to the end of verse 17, uh, for us to model our own attitudes on as Christians as those who have the gospel and should be sharing. And those three things, they're on your outlines, but let me give them to you now. They're thanksgiving for gospel faith, desire for gospel fruit, and then finally boldness for gospel proclamation. So let's have a look at each one of those in turn. The first thing we see in the heart of the gospel preacher is thanksgiving for gospel faith. From verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Put very simply, Paul is thankful that the Romans have faith. It's so simple a point that hardly seems worth uh, spending too much time on it, but we have to. And the reason we have to is because faith is a gift. It comes from God. And so it is right for us to thank him when we see it, whether we see it in our own lives or whether we see it in the lives of those around us. In this particular case, the Romans' faith was so renowned, the word of it had spread throughout the entire empire, and somewhere along the line, Paul hears about it. Now we know at this point in his life he's never visited Rome, he's had nothing to do with these Roman Christians, and even though he's their apostle by virtue of the fact that they are Gentiles, their faith hasn't come about by his ministry. And yet Paul's response is he here. He's not defensive, he's not dismissive, he's not insecure, as if someone, somebody's doing my job, I should have done that, what's going on? Instead, what happens is, every time he thinks of them, thankfulness wells up within him as he prays for them regularly. And that thankfulness, I think, shouldn't come as a surprise to us, should it? Because faith, the obedience of faith, is the desired response to the Gospel. And so when we see it, we should turn to praise the God who grants the faith and leads to salvation. So the thing I want you to be thinking then is as you look around at EOC, whether it's here at the Bible Talk, whether it's in your Bible studies, whether it's in your one-to-ones, are you thanking God for the faith that you see in your midst? Does it well up within you? Personally, what I hope will happen in this semester as we get more and more evangelistically active um, is that we will have many more opportunities to turn to God in thanks as we share the gospel and as we see people adopt it. So that's the first thing we see in the heart of the gospel preacher, we see thanksgiving for faith. Second, we see desire for gospel fruit. Have a look at verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul's desire as a gospel preacher is to see gospel fruit. We see in verse 11 that he wants to strengthen the Roman Christians and mutually encourage them. We see in verse 13 that he wants to reap a harvest among them. And for that reason, in verse 15, he is eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. Now, let me ask you a question, because I think this is a bit strange in the passage. If the faith of the Romans is so world-renowned, then why on earth does Paul want to go and preach the gospel to them? Is he creating a rebel church? Is he trying to establish the true church? It's a bit strange, isn't it? But The answer to that question is actually quite simple. The gospel is not just for those outside of the church. It's not just for unbelievers... It's for those of us inside the church as well. The gospel is the means by which God grows and strengthens the faith of all Christians, whether they're new converts putting their faith in Jesus for the first time, or seasoned saints who've been walking in the faith all of their lives. And so it's Paul's hunger to see gospel fruit that makes him so desperate to preach the gospel in Rome. He's eager. He's praying without ceasing. He's always asking God for any sort of opportunity to see faith flourish. Now, the thing to get about Paul's situation is that even though he's chomping at the bit, he's raring to go, he wants out of the gates. We're told that God has been preventing him in verse 13. And I want to throw this challenge out to you, as members of EOC, um, that in your case, you don't have that problem. At NYC this year, um, which is our media camp, I set EOC the challenge that we would have every member in EOC reading the Gospel of Mark with a non-Christian on campus. That means every single one of you finding somebody who is not a believer of Jesus and sitting down and reading the Bible with them this semester. And that's why we did Mark last semester. I wanted you to be familiar with the book so that you have a bit of confidence as you read it with somebody who who's never seen it before um, to at least have an idea of what it was about. But here's the thing. The only thing preventing you from doing that is not the means like it was in Paul's case. You. The door is open. The campus is right there. And the only thing stopping you is your heart. How hungry are you for gospel fruit? How sincerely do you want to see the obedience of faith at ACU, not Sydney? Because all it takes is to go outside and walk up to a stranger, introduce yourself, hey, I'm Matt, and say, I'm from the EOC. Um, That's Evangelics on campus. the student group on campus. Um, We follow Jesus. We believe in a thing called the gospel. Have you ever heard of it? It's the most important thing in my life, which is why I'm going around to complete strangers. Would you like to know more? If they say no, maybe you can ask why. Maybe you get a conversation out of them. Maybe you don't. Maybe you just have to move on. Maybe you'll get a chance to keep talking to them. Otherwise, you just go to the next person. The thing for us to get is that people are out there waiting. People want salvation. We just have to find them. And that means talking to people. Now I know that sounds like a pretty scary prospect for a lot of you. And some of you, I think, are probably thinking you can't think of anything more terrifying. So let me segue then to the last thing we see in the heart of the gospel preacher, which is a boldness for gospel proclamation. Paul is thankful for faith, he's hungry for faith, and he's not ashamed of secret. Look at what he says in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, that statement should come as a surprise to us. Because in Paul's world, there were plenty of reasons to be ashamed of the gospel. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, the gospel that declared the Son as a crucified person was simultaneously offensive offensive and ridiculous in the, in the extreme. Today, it's not much better. Christians are called bigoted, they're called divisive, irrational, hoodwinked. So what I want to know is what enables Paul to be unashamed of the gospel message that attracts so much shame to his person in the context that he's in? And the answer is in the next part of verse 16. He says, "'I'm not ashamed of the gospel, "'for it is the power of God for salvation "'to everyone who believes.'" The reason he is not ashamed is because the gospel is the power of God. It saves people. And Paul knew that. He knew what he had. And it wasn't what the world told him it was. It wasn't outdated. It wasn't irrelevant. It wasn't inconsistent. What it was was salvation. And let me tell you when you know, like when you really know what you're doing is right, no amount of naysaying is going to dissuade you from that course, is it? Some examples from history, this happened with William Wilberforce and the abolition of the slave trade. happened later on with Martin Luther King and the fight for racial equality. They faced overwhelming opposition, but they weren't shamed into silence because they knew what they believed was true. And so let me ask you, both these men were driven to such confidence about implications that flowed from the Gospel. How much more will we gain confidence from the heart and substance of the Gospel itself? The things people said about Paul, his message, they didn't stick to him because he knew that they were false. They rolled off his person because he knew what he had. He had the power of God for salvation. And ain't nothing compares to that. It's like throwing eggs at a tank. The driver's just going to laugh before he rolls on over the hill to conquer whatever he's off to conquer. It's the same with us in the Gospel. Because God exerts his power through his Gospel... We have nothing to fear and nothing to be ashamed of. Only the prospect of lives saved and transformed for the sake of our Lord Jesus. It should give us great confidence then to share our faith. Because we aren't just sharing an opinion. We're sharing the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And so as we finish up, what I hope you've realised from today's talk is just how fundamental the gospel is to everything that we do. It is the reality that frames our existence, which is why it's so important that we are grounded in it. And it's why Paul starts his letter by preaching it. And so, as we close, I want to extend an invitation to every single one of you. Will you ground yourselves in the gospel this semester? Will you commit to making this hour in your week a priority? Because over the next 11 weeks, we're going to look at the first 11 chapters of Romans. Paul is going to explain to us what the Gospel is in unsurpassing depth. And it's a depth that we will need to know it if we are to stand firm and unashamed of the Gospel on campus. Now, the Protestant Reformer, there's a few of them today, isn't there? John Calvin said this about Romans. If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. And so my question to you is this. Will you walk through that door and ground yourself on the thing that matters the most? I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Paul. Thank you for his passion for the Gospel. And that in this chapter of Romans, we see not only what the heart of the Gospel is, but what the heart of the gospel preacher should be. I Pray for us as a group at the EOC, Lord, we are so thankful for the growth that we have seen in the last six months, just in sheer numbers and in interest. Lord, we pray that you will be bringing about um, the power that you have given us in your gospel to save people and to bring them to the obedience of faith. Lord, help us not to be ashamed. Instead, help us look to you and know that what we have, what you have given us, what you promise us in the gospel, is so profoundly worth more than anything else that it could cost us that we can stand unashamed and preach it. We pray that you will do this and you will give us great opportunities for thankfulness this semester as we see people come to faith. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. How are we going for time? We've got ten minutes, that's good.